adequate on this subject. Here are some things to think about with te- teaching children how to pray. Number one, they need to speak openly with God. Prayer is at the heart of it, and it is reverent. No mistake about that. I don't want to state this too casually, so we mistake this, but prayer at the heart of it, prayer is conversation. And the Bible says in Hebrews 4.16, we can come boldly or outspokenly to the throne of grace. We should teach, teach our children from an early age that prayer to God, be open, be bold. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. Pray about it. Number two, avoid insincere, vain repetition. And avoid just saying things just because we've always heard it said that way. God's not pleased with that. Just talk to God. You can start your prayer, God, and just go right to avoid insincere and vain repetition. And really, I don't think our children need help with that as much as we do, right? Children, they just pray for everything. They pray just, they just come up with things. They teach us how to pray sincerely. They don't say two prayers alike, really. But we want to guard them as they grow up. You don't, you don't need to have flowery language. with God doesn't have to be impressed to give you what you need. God just says, just pray. Here's number three. Pray about anything. Again, children do this very well. They need to see us doing it. In our prayers, and when we pray with and for our children, they need to see us praying about everything, everything in our lives. When people are sick that we know about, minor things that go on in the house, let them grow up in a home that they say, you know what, in our home, it was not uncharacteristic for anything to come up. The air condition to go out, a neighbor moving across the street, driving past an ambulance. We were people. It was not uncommon in our household for us to get together and say, we need to be praying about that. Let them grow up in a home. And then they're going to believe us when we say, you know, you can go to God about anything. Really? Anything? Oh, that's what they've seen their whole lives. First Peter 5, 7, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares about you. Now, God's waiting. God's saying, hey, cast them on me. Will we do it? And will we teach our children to do that? It'll breed humility. And here's the last one. Teach them to pray constantly. Luke 18 and verse 1, and this may be the hardest thing about prayer. Jesus taught his disciples that they should always pray and never lose heart, never faint. Keep praying and don't give up. That's what we want to teach our children. All right. So humility comes from lifting up our souls to the Lord, asking God to lead us, remembering what we need from God. That is, we need God's forgiveness. We need God to pardon us because we all make mistakes, fearing the Lord, number four, and then by learning how to pray. And the more you pray and the more you reach up to God, you realize, guess what? That the biggest problems, because this, this is the narrative of the world. We live in a selfie world that says you're special, you're important. You don't need anybody's help. The world just pumps pride into our children all the time. Sometimes they sort of codify it as self-esteem, but it's pride. And the Bible is saying the biggest problems in the world are not outside of you. They're within you and the problems outside of you. The world says the biggest problems are outside of you and the solutions are within you. God's saying we've got it reversed and we've got to teach our children how to get it right. Our problems ourselves. We think too much of ourselves and the solution to that is outside of us. Friend of mine, we were talking about the virtue of humility. And he shared this quote with me. It's by a man named Alan Mornis. Alan said this Carry two note cards in your pocket. On one, write, The world was created for me. And on the other, write, I am dust and ashes. That's a good balance of humility. The world's created for us. We're God's creation. We're the apple of his eye. The world is created for humans. It was for us to have dominion. And exercise authority. But there's another side to that. We're dust and ashes. And to dust, we will ultimately return until the resurrection of the body. 
and that'll keep us right where God wants us. Our lives have value. We're not worthless. We matter to God. But in the end, we're one part of God's great and grand creation. All right, go ahead and turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. And the reason why this lesson was titled A Golden Anniversary is because the background for it is Matthew 7 and verse 12, and that is what we call the golden rule. I don't know. Listen, I didn't pick these lessons just so you know. You just think, well, he's going to come here and talk about children and marriage. He thinks he's got it all figured out. I don't, right? Well, maybe you could figure that out just by looking at me that I don't have it all figured out. But, you know, it's always challenging to speak on raising children when you're still in the process of doing it and marriage when you haven't been married as long as others for sure. And so what I want to do is give you biblical principles, principles from the word of God, not what I think or, hey, do it like I'm doing it. I want to say this will help all of our marriages. And so Matthew 7, 12 says all things that you want men to do to you, do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. How do you have a golden anniversary? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, and then I'm going to go to another passage. And what I'm going to do with the, oh, I guess 20 minutes we have left is give you what I would say biblically are 10 principles, 10 steps toward an awesome marriage. If you do this, if I do this, I can assure you from God. I didn't say you're going to have a problem free marriage. I didn't say everything's going to be perfect but you will have an awesome God-filled marriage if you do these things. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13 first in its entirety, and then we'll go to the passage that I really want us to spend some time looking at. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongue, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, you may already know this, but 1 Corinthians 13 isn't about marriage. It's in a, a threefold section in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and 14. They go together. And it's in a section about spiritual gifts. The Corinthians are arguing about who's better. Really, the discussion centers around tongues and prophecy. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, choose the most excellent gift, which is love. Paul's not talking about marriage in 1 Corinthians 13. But the principles that he gives in 1 Corinthians 13... They'll bless any marriage because what he says about love in first Corinthians 13 isn't just true about congregations that are having problems about pride and spiritual gifts. It's true about relationships in general. In fact, if you think about this, you've got the Song of Solomon and you do have select passages in Proverbs. And I know there's Ephesians five, but there aren't really entire sections of the Bible that are dedicated to. OK, now here's how you do marriage step by step. We really don't have that. And we sometimes think about passages in the Bible that are practical for Christian living and we don't apply them to marriage. But I don't know why we don't, because the passages in the New Testament and the old, for that matter, 
that promote godly living and how we treat other people, they apply to our marriages as well. Outside of the sexual intimacy that our marriages involve, I don't know that God wants us to treat our spouses any differently than anybody else. We're to love them, but we're to love everybody. Love our neighbor, love our enemy. You say, well, yeah, but it's different with my spouse because I would die for my spouse. Well, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this. Man lay down his life for his friend. And First John says, hey, if we should lay down our lives for the brethren. Outside of that part of the relationship, we need to see our spouses, yes, in a greater degree. They're our best friend. They should be. But there's a sense in which God is saying the passages in the Bible that I've given for how to treat other people, how to respect and love them, those passages apply to the person that we've married. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Ephesians 4, and this passage in and of itself, like I've mentioned, it's not about marriage, but the principles will help us in our marriages because it's really about godly living. And at the end of the day, the best husband in the world is a faithful Christian, and the best wife in the world is a faithful Christian. And if you just take the biblical principles that God's given and put them into practice, you have a blessed marriage. Marriage can be challenging. It is. Every marriage is. And you'll be working at it until the end. But in the end, people sometimes say, well, there are two people in this marriage. And if one of us will change, things will be a lot better. Right. But what they often forget is it's the person that they look in the mirror because that's the only one they can change. Everything that God has ever commanded of you, just think about it, everything that God has ever commanded of you to do, that you have to do to be pleasing to him, in the end, doesn't depend on anybody else. It's always better when other people cooperate, but everything that God wants from you, everything that God wants from me, in the end, God has structured life in such a way that we don't really need other people's cooperation to get it done. It's better when they cooperate, when people help us, children, parents, church members, spouses. Oh, that's great. But even if they don't, God has structured our lives in such a way that we will only give account for ourselves and the things that God wants us to do, we can do them, even if other people don't reciprocate the same back. And that's where we really need to focus our attention. So let's go through the 10 things really quick. Number one, how to have an awesome marriage, put away the old man and put away lust. Ephesians 4.22. Notice what Paul says in verse 22. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires or through its deceitful lust. And so in this passage, again, it's about living the old way, putting on that old man, putting that old man away. And now put on that new man, put away those corrupt desires, put away the old man and the lust. Now, we normally use this passage to talk about the Christian life and we should. But it'll help our marriages, too. The same thing's true in our marriages. If you want an awesome marriage, put away the old person, the old way of doing things, and put away the selfish lust that wells up within every one of us and live the new life. The old man. You think about the old man, and we think about the man of sin. That's right. We've got to put him away. And when do we put away that old person? When do we initially, in, according to God, put away the old person? At... At baptism, when you're baptized, the Bible says you bury that old man. We bury it with Jesus in baptism and we rise to walk in newness of life. And that's true. And we need to appreciate the same thing applies to our marriages. Sometimes you come into our marriage with, hey, this is how I'm used to doing things. And I've got my ways and I've got my habits. You've got to put the old man to death. Now the two become one and you've got to put away those old habits and those old desires. You've got to think about, hey, I'm living life. I'm doing life with somebody else now. And it's not all about me and the way I want to do things. And also put away the deceitful lust. In verse 22, he says, 
the ESV has through your deceitful desires. Older translations have the deceitful lust. And you might think about how lust can destroy and ruin a marriage. It might be lusting for somebody else that's not our spouse. But it also might be lusting and desiring things about our spouse that we wish that we could change. And we might think to ourselves, if I could just change them, this marriage would be different. But here's what we got to appreciate about marriage. In marriage, our spouses are our partners, not our project. That's the end of the day. We sometimes, well, if I could just shape this person, if they're not your project, they're ultimately your partner, and that's what God wants. You could say a lot of things about Adam and Eve, couldn't you? A lot of bad things. They disobeyed God. They messed up the world. If they hadn't done what they, what they did, we'd, we'd be in a different situation. But one thing you've got to credit them with, they didn't split up. They walk out of the garden together. In fact, the very next thing we read about them in Genesis 4 and verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth to a son. They didn't just stick together and say, well, you ruined my life, and I've ruined yours. No, they stuck together, and they went on to have other children. Put away the old man and put away the deceitful lust. All right, here's number two, verse 23. Change your mind. Verse 23, Paul says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Want to have a happy marriage? Want to have a golden anniversary? Change your mind. Renew your mind. How are our minds renewed as Christians? What do we have to do to have our minds renewed? What was that? Feel with the right things. Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 2, have your mind, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need our minds renewed about marriage. The world says marriage is 50-50, right? God never says anything like that. You know, in God's eyes, marriage is 100 and 100. And guess whose hundreds you should be worried about, yours? Sometimes we say, well, I'm the only one putting in in this marriage, and I'm just, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to start pulling back. You know, I'm tired of doing everything, and because I'm just going to pull back, and we're just going to see how things work. I'm putting in too much. You just only have to, only all God wants from you is your 100%. That's what you just, that's your responsibility. That's mine. Just put in your 100. That's all you can handle. That's all you're responsible for. Change our minds about the way we view marriage. Marriage is not 50 50. In God's eyes, it's 100 100, and we need to see it that way. Instead of demanding our rights, you remember 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, Paul says, Love seeks not her own. Love doesn't argue for its own way or insist in its own way. Love is more focused on surrender. Love doesn't say, your life for mine. It says, my life for yours. I'm going to surrender. It's not about me. That only happens as our minds are changed. We've got to have our minds renewed and changed about relationships. And don't think about, well, look, at, I, I know I've sacrificed more in this marriage. I know I've done more and put up with more than you. We should be thinking about, that's my responsibility. That's what I want to do. I want to serve and I want to be, I want to be a help. Renew our minds about marriage. And also, what do we want out of our marriage? Sometimes Hollywood and the world tells us what a successful marriage looks like, but God has other ideas. And in God's mind, a successful marriage is one where both spouses love each other through failures and through faults and ultimately help one another across the finish line of life to make it back home to him. So don't think about your marriage in ways that you always have. Change them and think about it the way that God would have you to think about it. Paul David Tripp, he wrote a book about marriage. It's probably the best book I've read about marriage. It's called Marriage, Six Commitments That Every Couple Should Make. Paul David Tripp, his book on marriage. And he says in every one of us, there's what Tripp calls the inner lawyer. And when things happen in our marriage, the inner lawyer stands up. And it's never my fault. 
I've done everything right. I've been the best person. That inner lawyer says, you know what's wrong in this family? You know what's wrong in this marriage? It's the other person. He said, you got to fire the inner lawyer. Got to put them out of a job or to ruin your marriage. Because in the end, the person you need to work on in your marriage is you. And that's the only person you can control. Now, here's number three. Verse 24. Be righteous and holy. Paul says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If our marriages are going to be what God would have them to be, it's to the degree that we live righteous and holy lives. What does it mean to be holy? What is holiness? Set apart, yes. Pure and ultimately like God in the end, I believe. Is that it? Is that our time? I think we've got maybe five or ten minutes. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, so holiness means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. It means to be like God. And we'll have an awesome marriage if we focus on that. If we focus on we're going to be God's person and we're going to be set apart for God's special purposes in our unions, that's what's going to help us. How can I be more like Jesus Christ? That's what's going to help us to be the people that God would ultimately have us to be. In our marriage, we should appreciate that God wants us to be those types of people that will foster the very same spirit that he has. Number five, verse 25, tell the truth. Verse 25, Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The Bible has a lot to say about lying, and as you might imagine, all of it's negative. God hates lying, Proverbs 6, 17 and 18. I was talking to somebody the other day about marriage and about some other things, and this person was talking about trust, and they were saying, you know, trust, it takes a long time to build, and you can lose it. It takes years to build trust and seconds to crumble it, and that can happen through dishonesty. If you just say to yourself, I'm just not going to lie to my spouse, I'm going to tell the truth, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. We just talked about humility. You know why people lie? They lie because of selfishness for themselves. They say, well, I don't want to hurt this person. I can't tell them the truth. No, they're afraid of what it'll do to them if they tell the truth. And so they don't tell it. But Paul says in verse 25, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, one of another. We read that passage and we say, well, Ephesians 5 is really about marriage. That's the passage where Paul talks about husbands and wives and submission. But notice, speak the truth with your neighbor. Who's closer to you in proximity than your spouse? Surely they're your neighbor and they need the truth from you. Our spouses need to know about us. He or she will not always be perfect, but I can always count on them to tell me the truth. They're always going to tell me what's right. We can be open and honest with each other in our failings and our success. I can count on this person to be truthful, to avoid lies. Here's some things to think about, about when it comes to avoiding lies. Remember this. Lies start with small things. We start compromising in small ways before we ever compromise with big things. Don't lie about small things. Where you went, what time you got back, just tell the truth. Number two, problems can be fixed, whatever they are, but problems can only be fixed if we're going to be honest and tell the truth. You can't fix what you don't know. And so if you won't be honest about issues and problems, they can't be fixed. Here's number three. Love the truth. Proverbs 23, 23, Solomon says, buy the truth and refuse to sell it. And wisdom and instruction and understanding. Just love the truth. You want everybody in your life to tell you the truth, don't you? You want your doctors to tell you the truth. Even when it's the hard truth, you say, I need to know the truth because we can't fix problems. I want to know the truth. We want politicians to tell us the truth, right? Not always so lucky there, but we want the truth, right? We want our children to tell us the truth. 
And guess what? If we're going to desire the truth from other people, we've got to be truthful. And here's the last one on this. Do not do things that you're uncomfortable repeating later. Don't do something that you're going to be ashamed to talk about later, that you're not going to want to rehearse when questioned about it. Just do things above board, above reproach, and you won't have to worry about it. Here's number five. How to have an awesome marriage. Control your anger and solve problems. That's verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is not simple in and of itself. Anytime you talk to somebody about anger, they normally quote this verse. Well, you've got God's permission to be angry. The Bible says be angry, and what's the last part? Everybody, what's the last part? Be angry and sin not. Then think about this. How good are you at that? Who gets really angry and says, oh, I just can't wait to go do the will of God, right? No, you don't. We, we quote that verse, but we, fa we fail to see how bad we are at actually doing it. Well, I can be angry as long as I don't sin. You and I don't have a very good track record of that, though, do we? James says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1.20. In your marriage, control your anger. But he's spending all the money, and she's burning all the biscuits, and he's doing, control your anger. Oh, talk about problems, discuss them, come to resolutions, but don't let anger get the mastery over you. In fact, discuss the issues. This passage, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, it means don't let things bubble over and boil over because you'll pump steroids into your problems. And so control your anger. Don't let, it, don't let it get the best of you. Think about good people who let their anger get the best of them. Moses in Numbers 20, his anger got the best of them. He struck the rock when he should have spoke. He got angry. He did what he shouldn't have done. All right, we've got to move. Number six. Could say more about that. Well, let me, let me say a thing or two about the anger. Um, how do you deal with this when you do get angry? Let me just say a few quick things and then we'll go on to number six. Sometimes it is good to wait until you calm down because when, we're, when we speak to people when we're angry, we normally speak in broad generalities. You always do this. I've told you a million times and we magnify problems when we do that. Here's number two. Treat them with respect. They're still your spouse. The golden rule still applies. Matthew 7 and verse 12. And then number three, give grace. Irritating habits take time to develop and even more time to desist. And by the way, you have irritating habits and things that you do too. You, you just don't know it. They don't irritate you, but every one of us has those things. All right, here's number six. Don't give the devil a foothold. That's verse 27. How to have an awesome marriage. Don't give the devil an inch. And give no opportunity. The old King James says, neither give place to the devil. You know the devil hates marriage? He hates it, generally speaking. He attacks it all the time. But it's worse than that. The devil hates your marriage, specifically. And you may say, well, we, we've been married 56. We're coasting. We're, we're near the finish line. The devil's not done. The devil hates marriage. And Paul here is talking about the Christian life, but it's true about marriage. Don't give the devil a launching pad. Don't give the devil an entry. Don't give place to the devil. Don't give him opportunity. Don't put yourself in tempting situations. Don't talk badly about your spouse behind their back to other people. Don't join in on gossip when women are beating down husbands or when husbands are beating down wives. Don't give place to the devil. Don't do it. Paul says don't give him a launching pad. You know why? Because if he gets a launching pad, it's hard to get him out. The devil seeks to devour us. Let's not make his job any easier. There are some ways that we sometimes give the devil a foothold in our marriages. Number one, you might think about this, spending lots of time apart. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent talks to Eve, it seems as if Adam is not there, or at least not right up on the scene. 
spending a lots of time apart. I know sometimes this has to happen for jobs and other things, but we should try to keep it to a minimum. Would you, would you accept a successful job, a career, or even a ministry at the cost of your marriage, of a happy marriage? Would you? Show of hands. You say, I'd take a job, a career, even a ministry position if it would cost me my marriage. If I could have this success over here, I'd do it, even if it cost me my marriage. Nobody signs up for that. Now, if somebody looked at your calendar, would they agree with your answer? All right, here's next. The devil gets a foothold in our marriages when we always argue, even over silly things, right? You're telling the story. You remember that time we went down the street, we went about 10 miles. No, it wasn't 10 miles. It was eight. Okay. And then we went eight miles and we turned left. We didn't turn left. We turned right. Okay. We turned right. We just argue over silly things. Number three, he does about pulling us away from the Lord. It may be the case in marriage that both of you will be strong Christians your entire lives, and that'd be great. But if that's not the case, one of you has to have the courage to say, oh, we, we're going back Sunday night. Yeah, we should. When one of you said, well, I really don't want to go to Bible class this morning, the other one should say, you know, we shouldn't miss because the bad thing about missing church is soon you won't miss it. So we need to make sure that we go. we're not going to do. No, we're going to go to the gospel meeting. We're going to go to VBS. Don't separate from the Lord. What number is this? I don't know. Which, what number are we on? Number Number seven. Learn how to count. That'll help your marriage. No. All right. <laughs> Number seven, provide what your spouse needs. That's verse 28. And I'm just going to give you these in rapid succession now. But verse 28 says, let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor so that he might have to provide for the one that needs. This is about working so that you can provide for other people. But it's about your spouse, too. Your spouse has certain needs. She needs love. We've got to learn to speak her love language. He needs respect and he has other needs. You've got to learn how to speak his love language as well. And by the way, we talk about love languages. People have more than one love language. We tend to think about the primary one, which is important, but there are other ones as well. And so provide what your spouse needs. Number eight, I believe. Verse 29, speak wisely to and about your spouse. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for the building up as it fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. It's you remember in the Old Testament where Isaac does what his father Abraham had done. And he said, Rebecca's not my wife. She's really my sister. And then in chapter 26 of Genesis, his lie was found out because Abimelech looked out of his window and he saw Isaac and Rebecca. And the old King James says he was playing sport with her. Newer translations say they were sort of joking around. There was something in their relationship that communicated they're not brother and sister. I wonder if people looked in on our relationships, if there was just something about the way that we dealt with our spouses where people would say, they're not brothers, they're, they're close, they care about each other, they listen to how he talks to her, listen to how she talks to him, they care about each other. And here are the last two, because we're out of time. Verse 30 and verse 31, think about eternity together. Paul talks about being sealed for the day of redemption. And then... Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ has forgiven you. The tenth, and <clears throat> the tenth and final one is to practice the golden rule. We're going to have an awesome marriage. We're going to need a lot of forgiveness along the way, and we're going to need to extend a lot of forgiveness. And if we do that, we'll be the people God wants us to be. We won't have perfect, sinless marriages but we can have God honoring ones. And that's ultimately what God wants. So the golden rule applies to everybody we meet, but also to our spouses. 
I believe that's our time for tonight, but thanks for a good two days. I've enjoyed being here with you at South Green Street talking about parenting and marriage. Thanks for your participation and for a good class tonight.